Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux episode 203, the show with no name, recorded August 30th, 2015, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week is uh, Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson, and he alone is all the co-host we need tonight. Hello, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome to all of the awesomely spectacular Element Opie faithful who grace us with their presence on an ongoing basis. I'm not sure if Chris mentioned it on the show last night, uh, last week, or just uh, you know before and after, but he's moving, and it was the internet transition, right? We're going to shut it off at this address and turn it on at this address, and because no internet company has ever gotten that right, he is sans internet tonight and therefore shall not be joining us. Uh, let's face it, moving sucks every time it's tried, and uh, doing trying to do a podcast in the middle of a move just would have been a Herculean effort, so we're fine with him not being here. Yeah, moving plus buying a house plus moving out of your house with a family. All of those X um multiply the moving experience. So yeah, you know, the fact that he misses a week, I I'm kind I it's kind of cool if it's only one week. So All right. So I wanted to to mention you guys, you know, we talk about uh uh things that we like on here a lot and uh I am I am right in the middle, pretty close to in the middle. Let me look right now. Um, to be mathematically accurate because that's the kind of audience we have. Uh, no, I'm I'm not quite. I'm 13 hours and 40 minutes into a 32 hour audiobook, so uh, just over one third of the way through. A book called Seven Eves. It's a one word palindrome, seven, and then seven spelled backwards with one end. Um, it's by Neil Stevenson. Um, I f- don't remember where I heard about it. Uh. But it was a a book recommended uh, by something, and it's fascinating. In the first chapter, I, I love sci-fi books that start this way. Uh, first chapter of the book, the moon explodes, and they spend about four paragraphs trying to explain why the moon might have exploded before they get down to the fact that, holy crap, the moon just exploded. And so as a result of the moon exploding, um, the, it's going to start raining chunks of debris down on the earth in a couple of years time and it will be an event large enough to wipe out not only all life on earth but all geological features on earth as in boil the oceans flatten the mountains uh because you know you get something roughly a tenth the size of the planet breaking up into billions of pieces and falling uh at orbital speeds onto the planet so the earth uh has like you know right around the two years no spoilers here. This is like the first chapter of the book. Um, two years to get off the planet. Um, and if you if you enjoy the the Martian, right, like I did, the the engineering and the the figuring things out. Now uh, Neil Stevenson takes some um, liberties with technology. Um, he doesn't set a date of this, but it's there's some technology that he invented that doesn't quite exist in the world today, but most of it is pretty well grounded. Uh, in real science. Um, and it's just, it's been really enjoyable. Um, it, it's been a fun engineering trick for, for me to, to, to try to keep up with, with this. And, you know, how, how are we going to, how are we going to get as much of the population as possible into space when currently we have like 12 astronauts on the International Space Station and that's the best we can do? So 
just a recommendation to you if you want to check it out uh com slash audible you can get the audio book uh if you try out uh, sign up for the the book a month you can get this book for free um if you if you like it keep it and another book will come and you'll get charged i think it's 14 dollars. if you don't like it cancel it this book is still yours so check it out seven eves are, are you familiar with it at all seth i have never heard of it and um i am looking it up online to see if it's some huh, huh i could see me buying this book i might have to look into it i've kind of taken a break from uh reading because i did so much reading um for a protracted period of time there so i'm kind of just giving that a little break and uh kicking up some podcasts so uh just uh i don't even that wasn't really a review it was a recommendation that's what we'll call it so if you're looking for it's a long book I, i assume if it's 30 hours audio it's probably you know uh at least uh 12 to 15 hours uh reading pace so it's it's a weekend book um if you want to pick it up but i, I really i recommend it it's available in uh ebook format as well as i'm sure you can get it on dead tree edition uh but seven eves neil stevenson yes you can do the dead tree edition because i know that's the only way you like to read books i do because i'm i'm too visual to enjoy the listening to a long protracted story you know i mean it's cool for learning something but there's got to be something more for the story you know if somebody were telling it to me and there were like the the gesticulations that went with it maybe but it's it's missing something for me but you know that's personal opinion and and you're by no means in the minority most book lovers love books more than they love stories or as as much as they love stories right i'm a story lover not a book lover so you have here in the notes seth that you were able to fail up what does that mean yeah well you know we talked before about when i lost my other job and i started this one there was a four-week thing well i had got something in the mail last week saying that my uh unemployment was going to be i was approved but it was going to be zero dollars a week because of the severance I had gotten. And so I was like, well, great, no unemployment, but I have my job, whatever, I'm good. And then this week in the mail, uh, one day I got a letter saying, oh, we've approved your amount, be- and even though you had this other pay, and then the next day I received my money in the mail. So for my four-week vacation, I received five weeks worth of pay. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, and I'm working in a job at uh, almost the exact same pay, very comparable. So, you know, I mean, I failed and lost my job. But I fell up. So, you know, at this rate, I need to, I need to get fired. I'm just going to see if I can get fired once or twice a month. If I yeah. Can I mean, you could work your way into a six figure salary if you get, fa- if you get fired every two months. Yeah. So it was kind of cool, you know. So I went from having, you know, I was going to have just a little bit of money left over before I started getting my paychecks. And now all of a sudden it's truly like, I got a bonus or something because I have, you know, granted it's a debit card, but I'm just using my, I'm using my debit card. Like I used to use my credit card. So when I have to pay that bill, I'm going to have money left over. So if you're going to fail in life, try to fail up people. That's the way to do it. All right. That's good stuff. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about is not an audio book. Uh, and I recognize that a certain segment of my audience isn't going to care about what I have to say now, but another certain uh, segment is. Uh, and that's uh, one of the things that I like to do on the show is movie reviews. I took my family to see War Room 
yesterday. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Kendrick brothers, they, uh, they, Stephen and Alex Kendrick started making movies at a church in South Georgia as a ministry of that church. Um, yeah, probably 10 years ago. They've made five movies, starting with Flywheel. Facing the Giants got some uh, theater time. You might have heard of that one. Fireproof, uh, starring Kirk Cameron, um, got a little more. And the the one that they're probably most known for was Courageous, came out a couple of years ago. Uh, Tony Dungy uh, of the NFL was, was uh, big in promoting that one. And this one is their biggest budget uh, film yet, War Room. Uh, so, you know, right off the bat, it is a, it is a religious show. It's a faith-based film. Uh, and the war that they're talking about is the the war, the spiritual warfare of prayer. So I've read a lot of reviews, uh, not a lot. There are only like you go to MDB there, uh, IMDB there are five or six reviews on there, um, because it's it's a small release um, and it's you know it's it's a church movie. It's made for church groups, right? And and our church rented out a theater and went to see it. And there's a place for that. Not everything has to be Avengers. Not everything has to be a major motion motion picture. But what got me was a lot of the reviews I read weren't about the movie. They they didn't comment on the acting or the or the lighting or the dialogue. They commented on the 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 substance, right? So because they didn't agree with the spiritual aspects of the movie, they panned the movie. Or vice versa, because they liked the spiritual message of the movie, they gave it ten stars. It was the perfect movie. I've, neither of those is an appropriate response to this movie. Now, I admit this is not really the appropriate place for a review of this movie in the Linux podcast. It's not about Linux, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so fast forward five or six minutes if you're not interested in this. But I just wanted to tell you, this: the, the Kendrick Brothers, they have a style, and that style is heavy-handed and preachy um, and and with a good bit of, of just tr- cheese to it. Um, it's it's uh, their dialogue is hokey, but then again, so was George Lucas's, and he did just fine. Um, but it's their style. It's their signature. So it's got their signature all over it. But it's their biggest budget. The You could tell Flywheel, their first movie, and, and I own all their movies, and I enjoy them. And one of the things that I commented to my wife was uh, we, I took the whole family to see uh, the movie yesterday. And I, as we were uh, getting ready for bed last night, I said, when was the last time that I took the whole family to a movie that didn't have cartoon characters or puppets in it. Um, and we had to go back to Annie uh, in December. So it's been nine months since I was able to take my kids to a movie that had humans in it. So that that's a win in my book right there, that it even exists. Even if it's not very good, it was an outlet for my family that has not in the past. Just that aside, that for my, if you're, uh, now I have I've a fairly high standard. And I've talked about that, I'm pretty sure, on this show before. There, I I want to protect my children's uh, um, respect for life and uh, low tolerance for human suffering. I think that, that those are things that need to be guarded. When you get older, you begin to accept, you become uh, inured to human suffering. You become callous to it. Uh, and, and through a number of ways, just through living. Right, you live your life, and you see people suffer. You see people die. I I believe as a parent, it's my job to um, nurture that as long as possible, knowing that whenever it happens, their ro- innocence will be robbed of them too soon, already. So I I think that it's my job as a parent not to shelter them from the realities of the world, but not to rub suffering in their face either. 
So we we they have not seen any of the the Marvel movies uh, except uh, they saw the the Thor movie, the first Thor movie on TV, edited for television, um, and that's it. You know because there's a lot of pain and suffering in that. Uh, they haven't seen, you know, a lot of movies that a lot of people, you know, take their three-year-olds to. And, and I'm not making a judgment on that. You just parent your children differently than I parent my children. But this was a movie that I could take all f- uh, five of, all three of my kids, all my whole f- family of five to, including the six-year-old, and know that they were going to be in a safe environment and that I d- there weren't going to have to be things that I didn't want my children to see. That's a win for me right there. Seth, you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that's really cool. Um, you know, there's, I like the way that you're into the moviness of movies and you can kind of go beyond the story and you have an eye for that. For me, that's very difficult to do because I'm a sus- suspend disbelief as much as possible and let's just get into the story. Um, but you know, a couple of questions I would have, like to me, one of the most famous, like quote unquote, Christian film uh recently was God's Not Dead. Right. Would you say this was a better and again, not not judging the content because you either agree with it or you don't, but would you say this is a better movie than that? Because while I liked the story and I was when I was telling somebody about it, I was like, you know, there's a saying that, you know, actors use lies to tell the truth. And um uh, and in that sense they did a good job telling the truth of the story, but has a movie, it wasn't a good movie. Was this a better movie than that? Uh, and I that I think that the Kendrick brothers are good at telling stories, and and as right. I've said, they're heavy handed and preachy, but for them, they're parables or sermons. Um, and so right. when I go to a Kendrick brothers movie, I expect to get a sermon. Um, and and you know, I would love to send them a page of the dictionary with the definition of subtlety circled because apparently they don't know what that is. Um, and I would right. like to see some more subtlety in their movies, but they began straight from the from the beginning to the end, pounding you with their message in all of their movies. Uh, so you know that aside, yes, I think it was a really enjoyable movie, and it stands up as a movie. Um, they like I said, they've got some big budget this time. There were you know things like dolly shots they've never had in any of their movies before. That's that move that you see all the time, where the camera slides gently from one side to the other, or even around uh, a thing, a dolly. They, those didn't exist. Everything they'd done before was either uh, hand camera work or in flywheel. It was clear that they had a camera to shoot that whole film on. And so they right. would do a shot with one person's perspective, flip the camera onto the other person's perspective. This one was much more projection. The lighting, uh, one of the things I noticed in movies, was much better. They had some budget. They had some better scenes. The acting, uh, none of their people are big, uh, big actors. So you're not getting a Tom Hanks uh, quality performance. You're not getting, uh, you know, a, a Meryl Streep quality performance. You're getting, you know, relative. You're getting writers. Like the the main character is a a, a writer, um, in real life. Uh, that's her real job, and she's acting. Uh, the one of the uh, ladies who they uh, Beth Moore is a uh, she does women's conferences and stuff, and they really punched up her involvement in this. She was only in the movie for like four minutes, uh, but it was obvious that she's not an actress. So. There's a lot of that. You have to just accept that. But again, I would say the same thing about all three, all really all six of the Star Wars movies. Yes, I just did admit that there were six of them. They they <laughs> had bad actors, young actors. And, um, you know, you just, uh, the, people will single out on that. But I think it was a good movie. Um, the, the story developed in a predictable way. Nothing surprised me. But again, you know, 
I can say that about most movies that I go to. Um, and so I, I just enjoy it. So if you're, you know, if you're in interested in Christian based, faith based, spiritual movies, then, then you will go in already liking the message. And there's nothing production wise that's going to turn you off. God's not dead. I, I agree with you, Seth. There were times when I went there wanting to like the film, but it, it, it was so ham handedly done in some places that it took you out of the film. Um, right. And the, the Provident Films, uh, crew, uh, they've, they've risen be, uh, above that. They, they, that hasn't been true for all of their movies. Another movie that they teamed up with, it's a different production company. I can't remember now, but, uh, Mom's Not Out is a, is a Christian comedy about a preacher's wife who goes out uh, on the town with uh, has a girls' night and hilarity ensues, um, and that's another one where it's you know you've got a message that you're trying to give, and so it, it's a sermon, but it's a sermon delivered in such a way that it's entertaining and enjoyable. So, if if you read all these reviews uh, of War Room, you may not even be uh, familiar with it because it was such a limited review uh, release. I mean, uh, don't let the negative reviews tell you that it's a bad movie. And don't let the glowing reviews tell you that it's an excellent work of art. It is neither. You know, on a scale of ten, it's a it's a good seven. It it's a passing grade, uh, but you're it's not stellar. But it's you can enjoy it, and you can take your kids to it. And the kind of conversations you'll be having afterwards of this movie are the kinds of conversations I want to have with my kids. And I can't I can't cool. say that about a lot of movies. Um, it's a it's a largely almost exclusively African-American cast. I have to say African-American. Some of them may be Canadian. I don't know. Uh, but um, And in some places, they I think they over-cliche that. Um, some of the characters are, are caricatures. Uh, but, but again, you can say that right. in pretty much any movie or television right. show. There was a TV show. Um, some friends of mine had DVR'd last night. And it was, um, and they did the, the premiere was two episodes linked together. So it was a one hour comedy. Oh my gosh. It was just, a, it was a one hour cliche caricature. And I was like, I don't know if I want to watch that. So one of, one of the main characters, Miss Cleo is the archetypal, uh, black grandma church lady. Um, you know, and her dialogue comes straight out of of you know a church service uh, through the whole movie she 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 talks through the whole movie like she's giving a sermon um and and that's you know it's i i really think at this point it's a style that that these people have chosen to do rather than a, a misgiving or a mistake it's just it's the way they've chosen to do to do it um and but you know I, i've talked with some of my my black friends who spend their time in black churches like no i know that lady she 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 goes to church with me every sunday i know her so it's an <laughs> archetype it's a stereotype but the, every stereotype has truth in it right okay so that's that's all i had to say about that probably more than than i should have said but i wanted to get that out there because i just don't think that there are many people doing this particular movie justice in the reviews they 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 either love the message or hate the message and judge the movie based on it. This is a this is a decent movie. That's that's the best I can say for it. It's not great. It's not terrible. In fact, I would put it on about the same scale as Annie, the last movie I saw with my kids, uh, or uh, Dolphin Tale Two, which last September was the last movie I saw with my kids that didn't have puppets or, or cartoon characters in it. The, they're such a dearth of of safe, in my opinion, movies. For kids out there uh, and all of them 
are mediocre movies. And I don't know what the reason for that is. Maybe there's the, the constraints you put on there to make a guy like me happy um, can only be a mediocre movie. The animated people, they make stellar movies. The puppet people, they make really good movies. The live action, they're all like, you know, seven or eight out of ten. Uh, they're all just okay movies. Yeah, I went and saw Hitman, Agent 47. Um, of course, I don't have kids, but that would not be a movie I would take, you know, a preschooler too but yet i saw preschoolers in the yes. theater and i'm like thinking why would you take a four or five year old movie or kid to see this movie um again you know i mean i knew what i was going to get going in there and it was you know some of the action was cool and of course some of the fights were cool but i mean it wasn't a great movie but it wasn't a bad movie it was a decent movie but again, that's not the kind of movie I would want to, I would want to take my four year old little girl and, you know, in the conversations after that, daddy, why did they shoot him in the head after shooting him in the chest? Why did they knock that guy off a bridge? And, you know, how come they were shooting that old man? And I'm just like, you know, I, I don't know, but so yeah. Um, throw in some random societal laments here. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I recognize that I'm very conservative about that sort of thing. And my some of my friends that go to the same church with me uh, take their kids to see these these movies that I consider entirely um, inappropriate for children. And, and when my when I talk like for example, I I went to see Age of Ultron uh, with my wife on a date night, and the kids they wanted to see it because they'd seen the commercials, and some of their friends at school wanted to see it. And I tell them it's not a bad movie. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't want you to think this is a bad movie. So I can't see it. It's just not a kid movie. And you're a kid. You're not ready yet. Um, and they understand that. And they trust me as their parent to make that decision for them. Because over the last, you know, my oldest is 12, my youngest is six. Over the last decade, I have built that trust with them. When there have been times they've gone to their neighbor's house and they've watched, you know, popped a DVD in of a movie that I hadn't let them watch. And they've come back and said, yeah, I didn't enjoy that. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. So you know, it's just, there's a whole list of things that I'm really anxious to show my kids when they get old enough, but they're just not there yet. The ratings mean something, people. PG-13, I really honestly believe that PG-13 is probably the most accurate rating of all of them, because most of those movies are appropriate for your average 13-year-old. The Their mature uh, uh, themes there that a 13-year-old can begin to process, a 5-year-old cannot. They do not have the mental capacity to process those those themes. And sometimes it's not a matter of mental capacity. It's emotional capacity. Right. You know, you have to be careful. Are you saying my kid's not smart enough to know? We're not. I'm saying we're the brain saying is people. not developed yet. Right. <laughs> it's, so. it's not a matter of sociology. It's not a matter of, of spirituality. It is a matter of biology. Their brain is simply not developed enough yet to emotionally or intellectually process some of these things. And you are damaging them when you take them to it. There's my preachiness. Hey, you know, and, and ironically enough, this is something that both you and I can speak to with our uh, counseling majors. So, you know, so we know a little bit about what we're talking about here, people, <laughs> unlike, you know, Linux and technology yeah. in general. That's the one thing I'm actually trained to know about. Um, 
All right, so moving on to, uh, we don't have any listener feedback, but uh, Seth wanted to point out that we were so far ahead of the curve that more than 70 or almost 70 episodes ago, we covered what uh, the uh, IDGA news is just now getting to. IDGA answers, excuse me. Yeah, this is uh, one of those kind of answer websites that seeks to become what uh, Yahoo Answers used to be. And somebody posed the question, how important is Linus Torvald to Linux at this stage? And, uh, you know, and of course somebody answered it and I'm like thinking, dude, we were so on top of this a year and a half ago. We not only asked the question, but we discussed it on air in depth. So way to go world <laughs> way to ride our coattails. Yeah. And the, the person who answered it quotes an IT world, uh, article, will Linux survive the death of Linus Torvalds? Um, and again, that came out after our article as well. So, I mean, they're still, they're, they're, they're just slow. They're not quite up to our standards yet. Not everybody so. can be as breaking as we are. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, so here's a, a, something that we have, I have lamented many times that there is not yet a solid, dependable, professional grade video editor in Linux. There have been a lot of people who are, who have been saying that theirs is the, going to be the next one. And here's another one saying that they're going to be the next one. Well, this is a Softpedia review of a program called Shortcut. Shotcut. So, uh, shot. Yeah, I'm sorry. Shot that, you know, I don't, it's you, we all do that. You see a word and you read what you want that word to be once. And then for the rest of your life, when you see that, you think the wrong word. Um, like for example, ramen noodles. I used to pronounce Romulan. So there's, there's no L in it, but they were Romulan noodles to me. So yes, I've been a Star Trek geek since I was a little kid, but, uh, shotcut. Um, so I haven't tried it because I just, I don't edit video. I'm not a, uh, I'm not an audio video kind of guy, but this author seemed to think it was a, uh, pretty good. And, you know, he's like, it's good in some ways. It's bad in others. And he gives it a four out of five. Some things he gave a five and other things he gave a three. So, you know, again, it's not a super duper editor, but you know, if you're looking for a video editor in Linux, give, uh, give shortcut a try and let us know what you think. What I think is missing. I mean, we have the high end one, right? We have Sinalera, uh, which is actually being used on movie sets and for movies. Uh, but what we don't have is Movie Maker or Windows or uh, uh, iMovie or for the Mac. We don't have the the point and click, drag and drop, make a movie and share it with your friends uh, on Linux. Now those tools are moving online, so I think that's going to matter less in the future. But it still does matter right now, and it is a knock against Linux on the desktop. So hopefully Shotcut can can help fill that in. I'll check it out after the show, and uh, and we'll see what we find out. Uh, next up, a uh, domain hijacking fear, spear, spear phishing plot had all the technology in place, but good old-fashioned uh, tinfoil hat foiled it. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and again, this guy was, um, I'm sorry, I don't know why, but somehow I closed out my window. I saw him opening <laughs> it and, and was vamping for time, and my vamping skills are lacking. But he received a email that looked, it looked very real. And if you go to this Ars Technica article, it shows what it, he, you know, he kind of took a screenshot of it and some things. And again, it's not perfect, but because of some issues he had had previously, he was all ready to click on it um, until he looked and went, 
uh-oh. So, and he has his filters set up, spam filters, all of that. Um, it had made it past everything because this wasn't just a generic spam email. This was like some targeted spear phishing. And, uh, but he was tinfoil hat enough to go, I don't think so. And then he did some investigation and found out that it was somebody trying to hijack his domain. And, um, and by the time he was going to sandbox it and report it, the, um, the hosting company had already suspended it and stuff. So, you know, so just, and, uh, there's the article starts off that, and it says, uh, as the old joke goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that everybody isn't out to get you. So, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with security, there is no greater security tool than your brain, but at the same token, there's no greater security weakness than your brain too. So you've, you've got a brain, use it. And that you should do maybe decent. All right. And next up, some good news for Ubuntu Linux, which kind of needs some good news. Ubuntu dominates um, Amazon in the cloud, which is when you think cloud computing, you think Amazon, right? Yeah. Um, so this company and this article is on ZDNet. So if you want to go check it out, but they did their... Um, kind of a state of cloud infrastructure computing and Amazon web services dominates the public cloud with a 57% market share. Second place is the Azure infrastructure as a service with 12%. And so cloud markets latest analysis of operating system on Amazon's cloud says that Ubuntu has the most with approximately 135,000 and in second place is Amazon's version of Linux at 54,000. Windows, and this is, I'm surprised that Windows was in third place so far down the line uh, at 17,000. And fourth and fifth is CentOS and Red Hat for a combined. Com- combined? Golly, man, I, I've forgotten how to talk with a combined 14,000. So Red Hat and CentOS combined have roughly one-tenth the number um, that Ubuntu does. So this is on Amazon's uh, virtual cloud hosting system where they offer their own OS and people aren't using it. So they're using the Amazon cloud, but they're running by and large Ubuntu in the cloud. Yeah. And it was just like, and again, they're the largest one. They have over half of the market and, uh, and Ubuntu has over half of their market. So if Ubuntu isn't used anywhere else, it's used at like 30% of cloud services. And Seth didn't know this, but he put when he put this article in there, he gave me the perfect lead-in to tell you about a new sponsor for the Linux uh, uh, Everyday Linux podcast. Um, that is uh, DigitalOcean, which is a cloud hosting service provider. And DigitalOcean contacted me a few weeks ago and said, hey, we, we'd like to advertise on your show. And I wrote back and said, I appreciate the interest, uh, but I don't take advertising from products that I don't know and companies that I don't believe in. And they said, great, here's a free month. Go figure out if you believe in it. So I loaded up my a droplet, what they call their virtual machines in DigitalOcean. I used uh, the uh, the account that they gave me and and spent an entire Saturday, several, probably six hours, uh, making and breaking VMs and just really trying to to be dumb about it 
um, and and trying to spin things up in the wrong way and trying to make things not work. And like uh, so many other systems, you get your own server. It is a virtual server that you own, and yes, you can hose it. Uh, they don't protect you in the way that some other shared hosted things where you just have a folder in in their uh, their server. So there is that. But it also gives you the ultimate control. You can do whatever you want. You can put your own OS on there. Uh, Ubuntu is one of the options. Um, they also have Fedora. They have CentOS. They have uh, FreeBSD available, uh, all available as a one click, but you can, you don't have to do any of those, right? You can hook up to it if you want and, and put whatever OS you want on it. Cause it's your server. So I spent, like I said, uh, several hours pounding on it and I got to say, I am super, super impressed and I, I'm not easy to impress. Um, I tend to be pretty cranky about these sort of things. Uh, digital ocean servers, everything, it's a hundred percent SSD based. So all of their servers are lightning fast and, and, uh, because they're based on SSD servers, they all have uh, a gigabit network infrastructure. So, uh, each, uh, droplet that you create has a gigabit NIC in it, virtual NIC. They're based on, uh, KVM's, uh, platform. So if you're a Linux guy and you've done any virtual hosting, you know that KVM is sort of the darling virtualizer right now, hypervisor. Um, and it, it gives you raw access directly to the hardware, not like running a virtual box or, or a VMware where you only get a, a software machine. You're actually running on the bare metal, but in a virtualized uh, uh, environment. They're, they build their machines on powerful hex core machines uh, with ECC RAM. And as I said earlier, everything is SSD storage. They have an API if you're just interested in developing and you need a server to store your stuff and you're not really um, interested in interacting with the server in that way. They have a a full API directly for developers. They they, uh, provide IPv6 support. Not that anybody cares right now, but they will. Uh, But one of my favorite things about it was the one-click application. So you want to start, set up a machine with Ubuntu and uh, Apache and MySQL and PHP and throw a Drupal on it. That can take some time. Or you can use the one-click setup button and click Drupal, and 55 seconds later, you're set. I'm not kidding. I timed it. They they say that the their servers will spin up in less than a minute. They're not kidding. 55 seconds it took me to go from scratch to logging in to my Drupal. That's crazy. And then I I uh, went to their tried their um um support. Okay, I'm a total noob. I don't know how to do anything. I'm going to go to their support, and I'm going to type in this noob question. And I found intricate, detailed, and correct support documentation on their website on how to do every little thing. So if you don't know how to set up a, a you know, a, a buying service and you need to do that, there's instructions on how to do that. You don't know how to, to uh, um, uh, tweak a, a Samba or Apache, whatever you need to do, they have documentation right there on the side. It's not just, you know, here's your server, good luck, go Googling. They actually support your people. I was just, like I said, I'm really impressed with them. Uh, and I'm so happy that they're uh, choosing to uh, to support this podcast and I'm happy to, to support them. So I, you know, the, the thing that I'm most interested, not most interested, the thing that interests me heavily, uh, you know, my, uh, let's not forget the very first podcast I ever did was called the Taiwan tech. It's gotta be affordable. So right now through another hosting provider, I'm doing shared hosting with a dedicated IP address, uh, a backup service and a couple little add-ons. And I just paid the bill this month and it was 200 and, 30-ish dollars for the year. So at, uh, and that's just getting a, a piece of their server, just shared hosting. 
for DigitalOcean, they have several different models. Their cheapest one that you can go is five megabit, uh, $5 a month. $5 a month. You get half a gig of, uh, a half a meg of, a gig of RAM, 512 megs of RAM, a single core processor, a 20 gig SSD, and a, a terabyte a month of, of data transfer. So if you got a small project, that's, that's fine for five bucks a month. In fact, I could probably run my website on that box. It might be a little slow due to the RAM and, you know, we get some, some stuff in, but, um, that's, you know, that's pretty cheap. But the, the, the one that I think most people are going to use is the $10 a month, uh, uh, service. It's, it's, you get a, uh, Hey Mark, yes. um, before you go on, I just want to interject here a little bit. Some people might be turned off 512 megs of RAM. Well, that's nothing, but you have to server, remember. It's fine. Yeah. Because you aren't even like a do a do everything server, you're doing like a web development or website server that is very specific in what it's going to do. So it doesn't have to have the RAM to support dozens of things that you might want to do in the future. It only has to have RAM to do what you're telling it to do. So 512, again, you know, you wouldn't want to try to run a Google server off of 512 megs of RAM. But if you're going to set up a server because you want to, you know, learn how to code a web page on your own, or you want something that's going to persist outside of trainings that you're doing plenty plenty of that if you want to host a blog outside of facebook because you don't like their privacy policies um you know or data who owns what data then again that that is more than enough for something like that and so this next step up ten dollars a month gets you a gig uh, of ram and and 30 gigs of hard drive space and two terabytes of transfer two terabytes is is a lot right um our podcast running uh you know thousands of listeners downloading a, a, a file average of 100 megs we could burn through that in a month but you running you know your blog uh or your e-commerce site you're not likely to burn through that in a month and i haven't honestly i haven't gone through and, and seen but it's not like they cut you off after two terabytes they just start charging you a little more or maybe they move you to the next tier i'm not sure i'd have to check on that uh, then they go $20 a month, 40, all the way up to the $80 a month thing where you get eight gigs of RAM, uh, a quad core processor, 80 gigs of storage and five terabytes of transfer. So they've got stuff that can handle whatever you want to throw at it at reasonable prices. They're, they're, they're more expensive than shared hosting, but it's more product than shared hosting. Um, and if you sign up and use the code everyday Linux, uh, when you sign up or use the link on our uh, website, elementopi.com slash digital ocean, you get a $10 credit. So if you get the $10 a month package and a $10 credit, you got a free month to try it out. You don't like it, cancel it, walk away. You use the $5 product, you got $2 free. So as soon as you sign up and use that code, they throw $10 credit into your account and, and you can, it can save you half off your first month if you do the, the $20 one or get you two months if you do the $5 one. So this is literally risk free trials. So just on a lark, I wanted to see what happened. I went to the 512 meg one, the $5 one. Um, and I typed in, I, I, I put Fedora on it. Because why not? I'm playing with it. And I typed in, uh, yum install gnome dash desktop. So I put, I turned it into a full GUI machine with 512 megs of RAM. Now that's over a thousand packages downloaded over the internet. Um, and I probably burned through a fairly significant chunk of my one terabyte of transfer doing that. Um, but you know how long it took? It took about six minutes. That blew me away. Wow. It took about six minutes from the time I entered that command to the time I was attempting to log in to the GUI. 
I say attempting because you can't run a GUI on 512s of megs of RAM on Fedora. It just didn't work. Uh, it tried. It gave it its best guess. But you know what? I deleted that. I started over with the, the uh, one gig one, did the same thing, logged in, and it was fine. So you could actually get a GUI running in like 10 minutes. Uh, and it just, I, I've, I've, I know there are other services like that, but I've never seen anybody as complete and as full and as high performance as DigitalOcean, and I'm glad to have them on the show. LONOP.com slash DigitalOcean. Use the code EverydayLinux when you sign up. All right, back to the news. Mark, how do you know I didn't put that in there on purpose? Well, because you didn't know that we were doing this ad. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess uh, I'll give that to you. I had told the guys that we had a new sponsor uh, coming up, uh, and I had told them the name, but I didn't. I didn't tell them that it was happening. I didn't tell them that we uh, that the deal had been sealed. So that's how I know that Seth's motives were pure in this one. Um, I, I Seth, I'm not even going to try to intro this one. How much will you pay me? to drive my tractor okay this um i actually found this a link off of a reddit been a long time since i found anything through my reddit searching but this is an npr article um this farmer and you know i mean you could say he's not a super farmer gonna feed the world but he has i think roughly a thousand acres so i mean he's a real farmer um in san luis obispo uh, along the central coast of california and because of the software restriction inherent in his tractor, he is unable to repair his tractor if something goes down because under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, it is illegal for him to uh, change or attempt to circumvent the software. And so if he if a sensor that monitors his tractor and reports to the software goes out, he is out a day waiting for a John Deere rep to come out and diagnose it has a bad sensor. And if that uh, rep has the part to repair it, and if you're a farmer and, you know, I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, I've got this little garden out back because I like tomatoes or I want some fresh okra. If you're farming, you don't have a day to wait on your tractor being down. Uh, my grandpa wasn't a super farmer, but he farmed uh, when he moved out in the country you know, maybe 15, 20 acres uh, by himself. Um, he didn't have time to set up if his tractor was down. So he had a spare tractor in the shed that he could just go and get. Um, so, you know, this is, this is just companies being too restrictive because they can, because they take your money, because you have to have their equipment to do the job and they're being stupid and they're dumping on consumers. And because it's one little consumer versus a giant company, and this is John Deere, an American company, you would, you would know that just by their practices. <laughs> What's he going to do? So the last um, paragraph of the article I find telling says the copyright office is deliberating whether Tally Alford and, and other farmers can have the right to fix their tractors. They'll decide in October if they grant the exemption. It will only last three years. Then farmers will have to argue for it all over again. So there, nobody is just, just saying that he's not breaking the law by trying to fix his tractor. They are. That is a fact of law that is stated. They're trying to decide whether or not they can give a temporary exemption to the law to let you fix something you bought, you own. This isn't like software, like Microsoft Windows, where you license the software. You bought a piece of hardware that had software in it, and you were not allowed to upgrade the, the hardware because of the, the DRM on the software. 
This is what happens when lawmakers write laws about tech. Because yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. And that's not bad because you know, I wouldn't want somebody in office who claimed to be an expert in every subject because I mean, you would know that either their data uh from the future uh, a cyborg or they're <laughs> lying. But the problem is they refuse to acknowledge their inadequacy and refute. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure somebody pays them a lot of money to make sure that these laws are addressed from every conceivable angle. Um, and they've done studies. Uh, I just think it's ridiculous that this is what the future is coming to. Um, and the future is here. And unfortunately, it's not a brave new world. Yeah. And it's the thing is, he's not trying to reverse engineer the software. He's trying, right. he's trying to repair a piece of hardware, but because of the laws that prevent him from reverse, reverse engineering the software, he can't fix the hardware on what's probably a quarter million dollar piece of equipment. Yeah. And, and the thing is, most people, at least in America, live in an urban or suburban setting and they, the do it yourself mythos is by and large relegated to the history bin of America. If something breaks down, you take it to your mechanic or whatever. But if you're a farmer, you can't afford that. You have to know how to do it. And farmers of all generations up until this current one, if their tractor broke, they fixed it because they didn't have they were either a huge conglomerate with thousands and thousands of acres and dozens and dozens of stuff. And, you know, they could afford a mechanic, but for something like this, you can make a decent living off of a thousand acres, but not if you have to have a mechanic on staff, you know, not if you have to have a spare one so you can still work when this goes to the shop. This is what farmers and independent entrepreneurs do. They fix their stuff when it breaks. So he's not doing anything outside the normal accepted way his profession operates. He can no longer function the way his profession has functioned in America since before there was a nation called the United States of America. And that's frustrating, okay. but it's also the law of the land. You know what else is frustrating? If you're uh, Acrobat or Adobe and you're trying to sell Flash and Google keeps shutting you down. That's also frustrating. Yes, Google... <laughs> Dude, I... Rough day for Seth. <laughs> Idiot, I don't know what's going on, man. Google will hammer one more nail in Flash's coffin with a future... With a feature. feature. <laughs> man, that will soon prevent many Flash ads from displaying in the Chrome desktop. So what's going to happen... Um, this is a feature that's in Chrome beta now. If you have an ad that is flash based, um, and you, and it comes up there in Chrome, it's going to be paused and it'll say, Hey, do you want to see this flash based ad? Click here. So the next step will be what flash based ad. So, um, you know, and again, flash is a resource hog and in a lot of ways, it's good to see it go, but yet, there's still lots of people who know how to code in flash and there's lots of you know if flash is dead all of those flash ads that are out there are also dead and who wants to lose the residual income on this ad they did 10 years ago so um but yeah google is saying we need to get rid of flash and they're putting their software where their mouth is it's funny people were declaring that flash is dead five years ago flash is not dead flash is dying 
Uh, and the problem five years ago was there wasn't anything to replace it. HTML5 hadn't caught up yet. It has now. We no longer need yep. Flash. I didn't. See, I was a defender of Flash a long time ago because the people were wanting Apple in particular was wanting to just throw it out when there wasn't a replacement for it. Now there's a replacement for it. Now we just need to let Flash die. It's bulky. It's a resource hog. It's insecure. And even Adobe doesn't really like it anymore. They want to get rid of it too, but it's still, it's so embedded. It's become infrastructure in the system. Like if you go back in, in my show notes, um, you know, probably three years back, you'll see that all the things that, uh, all the shows were, uh, embedded in a flash, po- uh, player. I've since moved to an HTML5 player, but th- I didn't go back and update all my stuff back then. So there's all kinds of content on the web that you can't get to without flash. So it's going to have to hang around for a long, long time. But we don't have to to celebrate it. And I, and Google, the only decision they've made is we're not going to autoplay Flash. We're not going to autoplay Flash. Um, and ads <laughs> count on autoplay so that you see the ad. So um, it's not it's not a direct uh, slam against advertisers. It's just saying we're going to let the choosers. Uh, <laughs> wow, we're going to let the user decide <laughs> whether or not they choose to allow Flash. <laughs> Uh, in their browser session, and I like that idea. I think that that Google often went, uh, bans uh, <laughs> Seth. <laughs> so I think Google often wields the big ban hammer a little too heavily, but this time I think they got it right. You know, I have a great uh, show title. We could call it the Toe Shidle. <laughs> uh, we can't talk today. It's 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 catching. You've infected me. Oh man, this is yeah. It's a great day to be alive. So, so Flash, uh, it, I'm ready for it to go, and and I think, I, what's it going to take? Right, it's going to take for um, everything the replacements of Flash to be as good as Flash, and and we're there, but still, Flash will let you, lets you have more control over the computer outside the browser than does HTML5. HTML5 does a good job of restricting things to the browser. And nefarious types, and I would include ad companies uh, in the nefarious category, don't want that. They want to control the computer, not the browser. So that's where this tension is coming from right now. Yeah, you know, those Flash super cookies that have been around for a while, you know, you don't hear about HTML5 super cookies, at least not yet. So, yeah. All right, and I'm I'm curious, Seth, to to what you have here the a different take on the Ashley Madison issue. Now we have spent yeah. no time talking about this. This was uh, just to give you a bullet. It was essentially a website for high co- high uh, cost hookers. Um, no, 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 not for high cost hookers. For married people to register and have affairs with other married. Oh, okay. See, I misunderstood that was what the it purpose was. of the website. So. So my my and I'm not married and I'm not registered. So, but yeah, you just you know that. Um, if I don't, I I know that because I know weird, useless, trivial facts that we've established throughout the run of the show. So, um, but yes, yeah, so um, this article founded on osnews.com and it references another article. But um, this is a um, this person is posting an email from um a from a married woman. And so again, I'm just going to read this because it's only like three little paragraphs and it brings a different perspective. And uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more after I've read it, but it says, um, 
Ever since I wrote on Thursday about the Ashley Madison hack and resulting reactions, I've heard from dozens of people who use the site. They offer a remarkably wide range of reasons for doing so. I'm posting below one email I received that I find particularly illuminating. So uh, it gets even worse in this email. There are gay men and women in countries where being gay is punishable by death who are using this site to meet other gay men and women in secret. This hack will out them, possibly leading to their death. This hack and spreading of private information is just as bad as any other similar hacks. Despicable as it is, cheating is not a crime. And even if it were, do we really want to live in a world with mob justice? And yes, the parent company in this particular case isn't exactly of clear conscience, but that's no reason to throw the users under the bus or have them murdered by barbaric medieval governments. I know a lot of people like um, the world to be black and white because it's simple, easy to understand, and doesn't strain the brain. Sadly for them, that's not how the world works. So, you know, there's been a a rush to criminalize or to shame the people who use this. And what, the whole reason I'm including this story is... um one of the podcasts I subscribe to is TED Talks. And I just happened to have Friday on the way home listen to the one from Monica Lewinsky when she talked about uh, just the effects of public shaming on her. And so, you know, there is a rush to judgment that I know I have been guilty of many, many times in the past to say, oh, look at those bad people. Who cares that they got found out for this hack when you know, and we've actually had this conversation before where I was kind of on the other side of the fence. Um, but do we want somebody who comes in and steals information? And then do we want to, um, um, hero worship? I can't think of that good word. Um, because the, uh, the antithesis of vilify, whatever that is. Do we want to the antithesis Venerate. of vilify people? venerate there you go uh the people who did this and i don't think we do because it's only going to lead to other hacks in the future and you don't know the stories and again i'm i'm not a i'm not a cheating guy so um but i think that we're overlooking the crime because the people that were busted were easily um were easy to vilify because they were doing something bad. So this goes, so, this falls away. Just, just in case, cause I, I did such a poor job of explaining what happened was a group who didn't like the fact that the Ashley Madison site existed and that people did what they did on it. They hacked the, the system uh, and by what they say, they didn't even hack it. They just like, walked in the front door digitally speaking um they grabbed uh information and they did a, a data dump uh which include included user accounts and passwords and and outed people using the site now this goes back to the conversation that we've had many times before against vigilantism this is another case of digital vigilantism and the 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 white coat press likes to look at this and say, you know, this is uh, people doing despicable things. They got outed and they deserve what they got. My take on it is vigilantism is always bad. We cannot we cannot abide this kind of behavior. We certainly can't celebrate this kind of behavior because what happens when somebody decides that, you know, what you do is wrong, whatever that might be. Uh, what, what happens if they start going into, you know, churches because they, they're atheists and start, um, um, hacking financial records and posting bank account and social security numbers of people because those idiot Christians, uh, don't deserve the privacy. The, the vigilantism always leads to bad things and never should we celebrate doing a bad thing for what we believe is the right reason. 
Yeah. And we've had the conversation and this is another area where we don't know how to police the internet. We as a society don't know how to police the internet. You know, police officers do a pretty good job of policing the city, you know, and if they don't do a good job, but you know, maybe there's funding issues or whatever, but they know this is our city. We don't want certain events, you know, rape, murder, theft, extortion. We don't want those events happening in this geographic area. But at the same time, if you're two feet outside the geographical area, we're probably going to stop you there too. But so we know kind of how to do that. And some places are better and more effective than other, but we don't know how to do that on a worldwide interconnected web. It truly is a web of information, you know, where, where was the, where was this, um, company incorporated? Where were the, where were the servers located? How were they attacked? Where were they attacked from? You know, was it software that they were using that was exploited? There's so many different just gray areas that there aren't good laws to address or, or if there are, they're addressed very poorly. So in one sense, that's why there's in the same way there was vigilanteism in the American old West because there was no law. People had to take law into their own hands. I don't agree with what they did, but I know there needs to be some type of rules and protection because this time I would happen to agree that the group that was outed was probably bad, but at the same time, they have the freedom to do that. And I have to respect their freedom to do what they did because otherwise, you know, there'll be nobody left to agree with me when my freedom gets violated. So it's, it's that kind of thing that it doesn't matter, you know, and this goes back to the conversation. These people had their accounts. They had username and passwords. And I saw an article that talked about they were able, the people with hard passwords, they weren't able to crack those passwords. But here's somebody who, by the very nature that they have registered for this site, you've learned a great deal about that person. And oh, true, you don't have their you don't have their password, but you have their email address and you know they're a member of this site. So this is a sense where if they hadn't done this online or used an anonymous type site, they would still be safe. But because they registered for a site and they thought their information was secure because the company they registered with did apparently a poor job of implementing security. A non-existent job. Yeah. I haven't gone into and read the details of how they, how they claim the hack was done, but you know, they had good faith in the company they did business with to protect their information. And they did everything right on their end, everything they could do to verify their information was secure, but it turns out it wasn't secure. And now that they found out it's unsecure, it's impossible to go in and delete your account and pretend like you weren't there. So you can't unring the bell and the bell has been yep. rung. Uh, this next story is, is similar, uh, but not really at all, uh, where th this is sort of the dark side of open source. When you produce something as open source, you trust other people to not rip off your code. Yeah. And this company, GR Security, I personally haven't heard of them, but there's lots of stuff I haven't heard of, but they have a very good 
high sterling reputation of securing the Linux kernel, you know, providing patches and on their products and stuff. So what happened was this company that produces a device that uses embedded Linux, they're using an old unsupported kernel and they've taken GR security's old unsupported platform and integrated it into that kernel. And they're using GR security's name and logo and marketing goodwill that they've built up for being a sterling member in the uh, internet security business. And they're saying, look, we have security. We're using GR security. But, um, he said uh, he's kind of had enough with this industry and the straw that broke the camel's back was a face off in which he says a multi-billion dollar corporation had made GR security a critical component of their embedded platform. He doesn't have a problem with that, but they're using an old supported kernel and a several year old unsupported version of GR security that they've modified and they're modifying. But it's sort of like if you have a Windows 8 device, you're going back and finding something that worked with Windows XP and was top of the line for XP security. And you've kind of tweaked it a little bit to get it working Windows 8. And you're saying, see, we have this security company software. No, you have something that was good 20 years ago. Right. Cutting edge 20 years ago is cutting room floor today. But you're also and, violating and, the terms of the GPL by by right. rule. If you modify code, you have to release the modifications. Right. Um, so there's two there's two arguments here. One is that they've they've taken the code without um, acknowledging it, without support, uh, without uh, supporting financially, and they're using an unsupported version. There is a supported version. There is good stuff available. This company isn't using the newest and greatest, so you can, there's a reason to be upset about that. Another reason is that they have hacked the code, which they're allowed to do. It's open source, but by that same thing that allows them to hack the code, they have to publish those hacks, and they're not doing that. So they're violating both the spirit and the letter of the law, and apparently nobody at the company seems to care. And they're making it worse because in the future, GR Security is only going to release their patches to their subscribers. So it's going to hurt the overall community um, because they're not going to be giving back to that community. They're only going to be giving back to their um, to their customers. So that's, you know, way to go, stupid idiot trying to wring a nickel out of a turnip. You've you've bleeped the rest of us. And, you know, that the people there's some people who pay for it because it's open source. They can turn around and give it away or sell it. They have that right. But the right. people who are producing the code have decided no more. You got to pay to get it, which again, under the GPL, they have that right. So the only choice now, if you want a free version of the software, is to take their old code and start writing your own and releasing that. Um, and you know, there's, it's, there's a, a limited group. It's an esoteric uh, set of skills. There's not a lot of people who know how to do that. Uh, but and most of them probably already work there. Right. But, you know, if you, if, if you're at a point now where if you want to, to learn how to do that, your only choice is to go get educated. Maybe our friends over at the LinuxAcademy.com can help you do that. Their job is to take you from being a, a, a computer user to a Linux administrator. Not necessarily a kernel developer, but you got to start somewhere. So they do this by the way of step by step video courses that take you from, you know, step by step, literally each step along the way. You've got a video guide. You've got uh, uh, downloadable PDFs that if you're a paper guy, you can follow that. Uh, they're time coded with the thing so you know exactly where to go back there. There's practice quizzes when you're done so that you can make sure that you got it. There's a, there's a, a, a lesson browser and a, and 
and a, 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 a learning module system that tracks where you are. So you know, we, you know, we've talked about this all the time. They have all these tools. It's a it's a university in a in a box essentially. It's all the tools that you would need to to kickstart your new profession. And and you can do that at the Linux Academy. One of my favorite things that I like to talk about is their lab platform that runs in Amazon's cloud services. You you get up to eight different um, uh, uh, distributions. You can run four of them at a time simultaneously talking to each other in a private web or in a public web if you want to go that way. It's free to just, you know, destroy things and, and it's a safe place to learn by doing and by destroying. I know that in my life, many of the things I've learned uh, – uh, came from having to repair that which I broke. Um, and, you know, Linux Academy gives you those tools. All these amazing tools, certified high-quality content by by third-party independent people with a vested interest in making sure that people actually know the things that they say they know. They've tested this content and said, yes, if you do these things and you finish these tests, you will know what you say you know. And you get started, they, they, and it goes beyond uh, just Linux. They're They're doing a Ruby on Linux course right now, so you can learn Ruby programming. They have uh, Amazon Web Services uh, courses there. They have uh, SQL database courses now. So they're expanding beyond. Linux is the platform, the foundation, but they're expanding beyond that. So you can literally just start your career today at linuxacademy.com. If you're a truck driver and you don't want to be a truck driver anymore, if you're a, a dishwasher and you don't want to be a dishwasher anymore, if you're a janitor and you don't want to be a janitor anymore, linuxacademy.com is a place where you can turn around right now today Stop this podcast, go check out linuxacademy.com, because today you could start an entirely new life. And you can start yeah. that for as little as $25, actually not as little, as much as $25 a month. So that's the highest you'll pay for a single month, $25. Check it out. See if you like it. If you do like it, you could like anything else, the more you buy, the cheaper it is. So for three months, it's $65. You get a $10 discount right there. If you want to bite the bullet and buy for a year, $215 for a year, which is about $18 a month. But if you use the uh, Linux, uh, uh, if you go to linuxacademy.com slash everydaylinux, use that special URL, you get a, a lower price than even that so seth you were saying yeah i was just uh, you know the linux academy is great you could depending on how much effort you put into it you know i've used this line to describe them many times um and i'm stealing it from Stephen a smith you get out what you put in you know if you put the time in you could get good enough to get a first level linux job if you're somebody who is already computer literate, you can surf YouTube, you know how to go into Facebook and you can tweet and, you know, you can throw some hashtags out and you can already do stuff like that in less than a month. You would have the skill set level necessary to jump into an entry level Linux professional. Um, I just think that that's amazing. You know, in college. In, in one month, you've gone over the syllabus and met like yeah. 10 times and, uh, listen to, listen to your classmate try to take over every class the professor does. Whereas here, you're watching short videos. Um, hey, I didn't get that. Let me rewatch this one couple of minute video rather than sit through an entire lecture again. I, I just think they're great. And if you want to get serious in the computer field, Dude, this is the best combination of value and bang for your buck. You get the most bang for the smallest buck of any site I've come across. There you go. And as Seth likes to say, he doesn't just advertise for them. He gives them money every month. 
Yep. And uh, we've got feedback from a couple of people, and Seth has said it's true, too. They, they have held a uh, policy of uh, what you start at, the price you start at, you never pay more than that. So early on, when they were just kind of begging for people to bang on it, you started at a really low price, um, you, you're locked into that. So, you know, get it, get locked in now. Uh, at the price at the twenty five dollars uh, a month or or two hundred fifteen annually, uh, and and that won't go up because they're in today's market they're doing themselves a disservice if they don't raise their prices. They're just doing too much to stay this cheap. You know, and really we can't say they won't go up. We can only say because Anthony hasn't told us that. Right. We can only say in the past. And they've raised prices at least twice since I've joined. My price has stayed the same. So again, I don't want to say it won't go up because the next time it might. Um, but just in the past, they've grandfathered in the price you've paid. There, that has been their policy in the past. All right. So moving on, Cyanogen Mod is no longer Cyanogen Mod. It's Cyanogen OS. Yes, they have crossed over and now you can actually get phones. There's a couple of companies out there that are releasing phones that come with Cyanogen OS. So, you know, you don't have to root your phone, you know, back it up and install this ROM and all that. You can just go buy a Cyanogen mod phone. So, um, you know, and Android running along at 80 something percent of the total smartphone market of well over 1 billion devices. I think they're probably a little too big. So it'd be nice to see Cyanogen mod. I, I don't have a problem with the, uh, with Android being the biggest. I just have a problem with any single operating system dominating that much market share. So what's interesting though, is, is uh, one plus kind of was the first uh, phone to release a phone with Cyanogen OS on it, but now they're no longer. They've transitioned to their own Oxygen OS, and I don't know, you know, what the reasons for that are. But uh, Cyanogen OS is now moving into other markets and leaving at least uh, one behind. Uh, the the One Plus, um, the One Plus Two now comes with Oxygen OS, and seemingly will. Uh, in the future and i don't know i don't know what this means but my wife uh, who has a, a one plus one um got an update recently and it changed her uh default search engine from chrome to uh from google to bing and changed her homepage. so when she launched the chrome app it went to bing so there's i don't know what that means but it definitely i think she was hacked it definitely means that Cyanogen or, or One Plus One, uh, One Plus, excuse me, is uh, moving. I don't know. They're they're uh, pursuing other revenue options. I'm going to say. Well, well, there was a feud. Uh, there's a feud between One Plus and Cyanogen. Right. I've only kind of skirted it. And part of it has to do because. OnePlus was working with Cyanogen to launch, and they were going to be the first one with Cyanogen in this market, in this particular market. But Cyanogen partnered with someone else with that market before. So OnePlus said, well, if you're going to do that, we're not going to play with you anymore. We're just going to switch to uh, another OS. So that's that's what happened there. It was a feud, um, you know, because apparently the India... Uh, subcontinent with its roughly almost 1 billion people isn't large enough for multiple, uh, smartphone OSs. Uh, you know, so Cy or OnePlus is taking their hardware and 
jumping into bed or kicking cyanogenamide out of bed and using their own homegrown Android delivered called derivative called Oxygen OS. All right, and next up, this one is kind of cool. Uh, we talked a, a while back about a project called Limbitless that is an open source project that uh, allows you, if you have some spare time and a 3D printer, to, to print uh, prosthetic arms for kids. Uh, well, the, the ante has been upped now with another company that is making uh, really high-quality, fully functional uh, bionic limbs using 3D printers. Yeah, Open Bionics from Bristol, England. They were originally done, uh, they were originally funded from Indiegogo. And I got to tell you, I saw another TED Talk um, where this guy did a 15-minute talk. And while he was talking, he had a 3D printer print like this very intricate little ball about the size of a tennis ball with all kinds of sub layers and stuff. And it was a really, I tell you what, I'm digging the TED podcast. If you're not listening to that one, and the cool thing about that one is it's they're not that long. They're like while he was talking in less than 20 minutes, it printed it out a lot higher quality than 3D printers that print layer after layer. Anyway, it was a really cool thing. But um so uh Dextrous they won this um design contest and um Open Bionics is pretty cool. So it's a way to take um a finished hand that would sell for less than one thousand dollar or one thousand pounds, which is less than sixteen hundred American dollars, to get a prosthetic hand. I mean, that's insurance is probably going to be all over them to kind of get them out of business. That's too cheap for them. Um, I just thought it was a cool story, and I hope you'll check it out. It's a CNET article. Um, very cool. And they're they're good hands. They're functional hands. Um, they're not just uh, they're uh, they're not biomimetic. They don't look, they're not cosmetic. They don't look like uh, normal hands, but f- it's unusual in my experience, which is very limited, but I do, I do have a friend who makes these things. Um, so I have some tangential experience with it. The, the, the hands that look like hands don't function well, and the hands that function well don't look like hands. Uh, and so both the Limbitless and the uh, um, Dextrous uh, products don't look like hands they're they're bright primary colors they're 3d printed out of plastic right but they're highly functional um this you know picture on this website shows a kid solving a rubik's cube with his uh, bionic hand that uh, as an amp i have to assume that amputees are more interested in being able to do things than looking good uh looking like a real hand uh so i'm i'm really excited and and two thousand dollars which is you know roughly a thousand pounds uh 1800 or so um is is cheap and that's disposably cheap really in terms of bionics uh it's just it's mind-boggling what we can do uh again using open source plans open source products yeah and it takes like 40 hours to print so you have the basic plans you know they could kind of compare and so say it takes one week to take those plans and modify them to your specs then in less than another week you have a two weeks from the time you're like, I want a prosthetic to the time you're able to hold something in what was a non-existent hand. That's, that's freaking amazing or flopping awesome as yeah. somebody from Australia would say. And yeah. since the person who wrote this is from Australia, they're going to throw, throw in a nice, some Australian vernacular. And this is, this is nascent, right? This is in its infancy. Um, right. 10 years from now, it, you will leave the hospital after your injury. 
with a bionic hand. Yeah, it has 3D printers. You know, you're, the thing that slows you down is it takes 40 hours to print with the current model of 3D printers. And like I say, they already have models that could print this in less than an hour. It's just you're talking the, the price of those printers are still So it's uh, it's really going to be what Lucas imagined, right? Luke Skywalker gets his hand cut off. They take him in and this this robot puts a new one on in, you know, like a few minutes. With that's within the realm of our grasp now. That's amazing that we can actually really, be there in our lifetime. I think it. I mean, there would have to be some developmental work, like you know, scans of the other hand and stuff before, um, and to tweak the plans. But I think from the time they started building it, it would take. You know, you're talking by the end of next year, you could probably. Yeah, I don't see th- this is an amazing world we live in. There's no more, no more peg leg Pete, uh, doggone it. <laughs> so, you know, darn pirates. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, and the last thing is we're, we're going to end the show with a fizzle. Um, surprise, surprise. Nobody wanted the fire phone. Yeah. And Amazon is like saying, Hey, all you people we paid to develop the fire phone. Uh, goodbye. They're kind of cleaning house and collapsing. Uh, they were planning the larger tablet that kind of got shelved and they're kind of, uh, all of the, you know, there isn't a separate team anymore. It's all combined into one hardware team. Basically it's business as usual. Uh, Amazon took a shot at the fire phone. It didn't work. So they're moving on with their world. They aren't throwing good money after bad. And it's one of those things. Sorry for the people that lost their job. But at the same time, it it causes the stock to go up. So unfortunately, unless you're somebody who got fired, that's all you care about. If you own if you own Amazon stock, is is this good or bad for my investment? So, um, yeah. Uh, market analyst uh, Neil Mawson Mawson uh, says the Fire Phone failed due to three main factors: terrible design, bad distribution, and weak marketing. Which is surprising to me because. Amazon excels at both marketing and distribution. How would they even do that? You know, they they don't. Mobile is its own beast, and they walked in overconfident that, yeah. hey, our distribution excellence is going to cause us to dominate this uh, the way we dominate online shipping. And because they went in overconfident and stuck up with their superiority, they got their they got their bohinies handed to them rather handedly in the uh, in the smartphone market. And we we Which, said we said before the phone came out that we didn't think it would be anything. We said after the phone came out that we didn't. Once again, we're ahead of the curve. But then this was a softball right right over the plate too. Yeah, <laughs> lots of people were ahead of this curve. <laughs> Very shallow curve. I think I'm going to call that the news cycle for today, and uh, we'll move on to some old news. Uh, If you got it, Seth, what happened this week in computer history? Okay, August the 28th, 2004. Software Freedom Day is established and is firstly observed. And the Software Freedom Day is an annual worldwide celebration of free software. SFD is a public education effort with the aim of increasing awareness of free software and its virtues and encouraging its use. And they've since changed it to like the third Saturday of every month. And coincidentally, sometimes it is on National Talk Like a Pirate Day. And tens of gray beards 
were excited by it. That's about it. Yeah, I so many snide remarks I want to say <laughs> after that, but I'm just going to say, you know, Software Freedom Day was this last week, and um, I, you didn't see the the huge media blitz about Software Freedom Day this last week. It was amazing. There were skywriters and billboards, and it was on all the talk shows. Letterman did a top ten about it. it was no, no, yeah, no, I. Sorry, I was I was too busy being free to uh, <laughs> freedom. Right. So, keeping in the vein of history, what do you have for your uh, slow show closing spectacular this week? Okay, I came across this, and you know I love history. So this is just a YouTube channel, um, British Path, um, the things that wow. So. I'll be quiet. Um, you go here and they just have links. Of course, it's a YouTube channel. So something's going to play when you go there. Just historical stuff from the past. Um, just interesting things. Uh, you know, like one of the things is there's a 1969 video from when Arnold Schwarzenegger wins Mr. Universe. Um, you can see the Hindenburg disaster real footage. Um, uh, you know, that's where the line. Oh, the humanity. That's where that yes. comes from is the Hindenburg disaster. Um, just cool. And, you know, and, and these aren't like historical recreations. These are, this is the actual footage of stuff that happened, uh, from, you know, before most of us were born. And I'm sure there's something on here from before any of our listeners were born. I don't know that we have any super old people here. Uh, but if we do, hey, let, let us know that Sonny, I watched everything on there and I remember every event like it was yesterday. If so, you rock. But there's an invention of television uh, video from 1929. Uh, just lots of cool stuff. And again, some of the videos are longer than others. And most of them are black and white. Just cool, neat things. This is this is one of the great things that YouTube can do is preserve history that, you know, a newsreel footage isn't going to survive, you know, the elements, but it's digitally archived and can be maintained forever. So I remember in 93, 94, somewhere around then, uh, I got a copy of Grawler's CD encyclopedia. Uh, and it was, a, it was, it was groundbreaking, right? It was a, it was a, a digital encyclopedia searchable with multimedia on a CD. Um, and one of the video clips there was that famous Hindenburg uh, interview where the guy is saying it's terrible, it's terrible, all the humanity. And it was, uh, you know, on a my 640 by 480 uh, resolution screen, it was about uh, a 3 by 5 index card uh, size video, maybe even smaller than that, maybe business card size. So it was terrible video um, on the CD, but the, the experience of it, uh, first for just being able to access that at my fingertips, um, was mind-boggling at the time. You know, now we don't think anything uh, about just saying, hey, Google or OK or Siri, whatever. Um, but at the time, I was already just kind of uh, giddy with excitement about being able to do that. But I watched that video of the Hindenburg catch fire and burn, and, and I, a tear came to my eye and a catch in my throat as I felt the experience, the, the, the true pathos of that writer that this man who was paid to communicate, 
right? He was a, was a, a radio reporter, television reporter. His job is to find the right words at the right time. And he was so overtaken by emotion that he couldn't. All he could say was, oh, the humanity, it's terrible, it's terrible. Uh, and that, that moment was powerful for me, and I remember that uh, very vividly. So when you mentioned that, I was immediately transported back to that crappy little apartment that my wife and I were in uh, when we were first married, uh, watching <laughs> the Grawlers Multimedia Encyclopedia and the, the emotional hit that I felt um, when I saw that video for the first time. Yeah, I mean, and like I say, the Hindenburg is just one of the things on there. So, you know, they also have genuine disaster or footage from the Titanic disaster. Um, I don't know what kind of footage that would be, but just lots of stuff on here. And again, you know, there's, there's literally thousands of YouTube channels. Um, some of which are funny. Some, you know, this is just a cool one for, um, for history. Yeah, and, and going back to the thing that I talked about at the beginning of the show, the, the fictional story that I'm reading about having to to get humanity off the planet, how, how do you archive that, right? How do you send Google's data center into space if you need to? How do you, how do you archive YouTube? This is, we have put everything, we put all our eggs in one digital basket, and it's fascinating now that we're, there's, if Google dies and takes YouTube with it, that treasure trove is gone, and it's uh, it's frightening. Yeah. I guess you would have to get a lot of disks and a few copies of Spinrite and just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is the part of the show where I tell you how you can talk back to us. Go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page. That sends a nicely formatted email to my inbox that gets priority, and I will read it, I promise you. Or you can send an email to edl at elementop.com. That goes to all three of us, yet lest you think I am censoring your emails. Um, or if you would like to be right here in your own sweet voice here on this podcast, you can call 559-IMOP or use the podcast uh, or use the voicemail widget at, the, at elementop.com. Leave us a voicemail on our Google Voice uh, number and we'll play it on the show most likely. So uh, as I've said so many times before, we do this show for you. We crave, we need your feedback. We cannot get better unless you uh, tell us what you need, what you like, what you don't like. And, and, you know, don't be a troll about it, but if you don't like something, tell me. Seriously, if you do like something, tell everybody else. Uh, that's one of the best ways you can help us uh, other than supporting our sponsors is spreading the word, letting people know. If our, if our uh, you know, uh, listenership grows tenfold, the only way that can happen is because you went out and told ten people and everybody else did the same thing. And that would be amazing if you chose to do that. So. We uh we thank you for hanging out with us, Seth. As always, you were stellar. Uh, you uh you brought the goods, and uh, you made it so that I didn't actually have to do much work. And I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, so for now, I'm gonna say that ends this episode of Everyday Weeks. <laughs>